Welcome to a very special Trench Chat. I'm really pleased this week to be joined by Matt Dixon of the Footsteps of the Fallen podcast. Somebody on Twitter a little while ago suggested that me and Matt got together and kind of interviewed each other. And, and Matt very kindly did that first. And I was on his podcast a few weeks ago. And if you've not listened to that yet, make sure you go and check that out. And we'll put some links on our podcast website for that. And now Matt's come to join us and we're going to have a good old chat about the Great War this evening. So welcome, Matt. Uh, thank you very much indeed. How are you today? Good, good, good. And yourself? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me to come on and join you. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, I always like to start, I think, as you do when you, when you talk to people about the Great War. You know, how did you get to this point? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your path, as it were, to the Great War. Well, I was very fortunate in one sense that um, I, uh, I grew up in a house that was full of books. Both my uh, both my parents were are very very well read people, and my father has has a uh, a lifelong interest in World War One. He served in the military himself. He was a Royal Marines commando in four five commando, and um, he um, he'd always been interested in World War One. In fact, I think actually, if my memory serves me right, he took my mum to. The Somme when they were on honeymoon I think on their way down to um to uh to to the Alps I mean who says that romance is dead um and and I remember very very clearly when I was growing up he had this enormous collection of uh books on World War One and I used to spend hours sitting on the floor in the uh in in the uh living room where the bookcases were sort of looking through these kind of books and um I remember this sort of um I think it was kind of like an appalled sort of fascination with some of the pictures that I saw in there. There's obviously the very famous photograph of this skeleton lying in the mud outside the um, the German dugout. I think it's a Beaumont Hamel um, mm. with the uniform, with the arm across it. And it was sort of, um, yeah, sort of a slightly appalled fascination with it, really. And um, I remember that he had a couple of books that I was particularly interested in. One was uh, Before Endeavours Fade. Um, by Rose Coombs, which he um, fortunately has a signed copy of. He he met uh, Rose Coombs in Ypres and um, signed a book, and uh, a book by John Terrain as well that had some um, really remarkable pictures in it. And I sort of started really kind of getting into it um, from there. And um, we, my first sort of real taste of visiting the battlefields and cemeteries, I suppose, were we'd been on holiday in France and we were driving back towards uh, Calais and it was um, back in the days before anyone had mobile phones to go on and sort of change your booking and we were early my my father's usually impeccable timing had let him down and we had about sort of two hours to kill um, and uh, I remember we swung off the motorway and um, we stopped at a war cemetery and that was uh, Canadian Cemetery number two at uh just by Vimy Ridge oh. and I can remember it to, to to this day clear as anything um obviously with the immaculate green there's something that I remember very clearly was the lines in the green grass they'd obviously just cut the grass very recently and these immaculate sort of lines of white headstones um and then we went up to Vimy Ridge and went and, and looked at the memorial and um, I was just fascinated by it and I think I was probably only about uh, maybe 10 years old at the time I should think it's probably sort of 35 years ago or something like that and um, 
I think that's kind of really sparked that interest. And I was very, very fortunate that my my father didn't take much persuading to go for a trip over to the battlefields. And um, it sort of became a regular thing, really, that whenever, you know, school holidays or half term, we'd always try and nip over for a, a day or something like that. And um, over... A period of 20 years we we I, I have no idea how many times we went but it was an awful lot and we traveled all over France and uh Belgium and went to you know across to sort of Verdun and and the French sector and the Chemin des Dames and then we went to Gallipoli and spent a, a week in Gallipoli with each other and it really came from there so I have my uh, I have my father solely to blame for uh, for this interest and um I think really as I've got older it's kind of become more than an interest it's 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 become this sort of all-encompassing passion really it's um uh, for me now it's the first thing i think about in the morning you know and the last thing i think about at night and it doesn't matter you know how my day at work has been i've always got time to be able to sit down and have a look at a war diary or something like that and when you're doing things like the podcast or you're researching anything, it doesn't feel like work. It's yeah. just a pleasure. It doesn't matter how tired you are or how bad your day's been. You can immerse yourself in, in this history. And um, I think the thing that I always enjoy about it is you never stop learning. Um, I am mean, I'm by no no stretch of the imagination an expert on World War One. I. I, yeah, I know a bit, but um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who know an awful lot more than I do. And that, for me, really excites me. It's that journey. There's so much out there to learn, and and um, you know, every day's a school day, isn't it? And um, you know, and I think yeah. that's what um, I think that's what keeps um, keeps driving that passion. I had um, obviously there was a there was a family connection. Some of my dad's family served in in the Great War. They were all uh, cavalry soldiers. Um, so um, they served in the Ninth Lancers, the Queen's Own Oxford Hussars. Um, I think there was a couple served in the South Wales Borderers as well. Um, so there was kind of that sort of family history connection with it there. And um, I remember every year seeing the the family medals coming out of the safe and sort of uh, looking at them and, and and holding them. And I think at the time I probably was too young to really understand the significance of them. But now when I look back at them and, you know, I have the... Um, you know the medals to an old contemptible who lost his life in 1914 it's a very very special moment and it's something that i've been able to share with my son as well and um you know who knows maybe he might become interested in it as well well let's hope so let's hope so and you're absolutely right about you know continuing to learn i think the the more you study it the, the vastness of the subject and it takes you down all kind of you know well communication trenches to to other places um, and, and that's the that's the beauty of it, you know, because you, you find so much to explore and discover, don't you? Well, I, I think that's I think that's true. And I mean, one of the things that I'm extremely good at is procrastinating. And um, I, I start looking at something and then I will read something else and then I'll start having to start reading about that. And then two and a half hours later, I've forgotten what it was that I was originally starting to look at, but I've been, you know, I've been happy for two and a half hours because I'm say going off in all these different directions and looking at all these different things. And I don't think sometimes I need to be slightly more organized than I am and, 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 and stop, um, stop procrastinating so much, but um, it's, it's a great way of discovering things that uh, you didn't know before. No, absolutely. And I remember you saying, I think in one of your podcasts that you, you lived in France for a little while. Uh, I did, yes. So um, I lived in uh, Nancy over in uh, Lorraine. So obviously very close to, to Verdun. Obviously a lot of fighting there in um, you know in uh, early stages of the war, and uh, so it went on to sort of later on towards nineteen. 
18 and that sort of thing. So um, yes, that was uh, that was how I got to sort of visit the areas around um, around Bar-le-Duc and up to Verdun and and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, and it's um, it's it's one of those places where um, when you walk around and you look, you discover actually there's World War One history even in the city itself that perhaps you you might not otherwise realize so yeah it was it was a real privilege to be out there and obviously um you know the the contribution that the french made in in that particular area and, and obviously the suffering they went through as well i think it's um it's sort of omnipresent really wherever you go around that kind of area and it was fairly close to the vosges as well that wasn't uh, wasn't too far away it's about sort of a couple of hours something like that so i used to go down and spend weekends down there and i remember seeing you know the, the vast cemeteries down there so i was very lucky to to have that opportunity yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, living in France, you, you know, we, we, we look at the Great War because of, you know, our family backgrounds so from, a, from a British point of view. But when you do spend time and you have the opportunity like you did to, to live in France, you see how big a thing the Great War was in 20th century French history and how the echoes of it haven't really gone away, have they? No, absolutely, and I think I think one of the I think one of the problems sometimes that we have is is that um, nations kind of have a tendency to get focused on their own contribution, and what that sometimes means is we overlook you know the the contribution played by other people, and um, I think the the French sector of uh, World War One, the French sector of the line. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough that I have visited um, areas of it. I've explored it, but do I really understand it? No. Um, and you know, But that offers a whole world of opportunities. It just means I'll have to go back to France again, which is a, a terrible thing. Um, but um, no, I, 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 I think you're right. And, and I think when you start looking at just the, the sort of the catastrophic impacts that uh, the fighting had on France as a nation. Um, and you then start to understand really why there is still that poignancy about it and why it's so important to the kind of the psyche of the country, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, almost every other street has got some kind of military history um, aspect to it in terms of the naming of it and war memorials everywhere. Yeah, the French contribution is, is such a big one and, and part of our understanding of our own side of the Great War. I, th- I think one of the things also that, that I always enjoy doing is, is French war memorials are magnificent, aren't they? When you go around some of these and you see these incredible statues of these sort of, you know, the heroic Poilu with his, um, you know, his rifle and what have you. And I mean, they, they, they I, I'm not sure if this is the right expression, but they do it well. Mm, mm. And then they, they did all those ones where you've got a Poilu stamping on a Prussian eagle, which then got them into trouble when the Germans came back 20 odd years later. Absolutely marvellous. I mean, yeah, I think we should have more of this sort of thing. <laughs> That's right. It's, yeah, it's certainly an interesting culture thing. I think that, uh, I mean, I, I find a lot of modern visitors can't quite understand the animosity between French and German people, or certainly France and Germany, let's say. But then, you know, having lived there, and I'm sure you, you felt the same, you, you, you sense it, particularly in older generations, whether that will change as generations that really have, you know, never known any kind of war, um, Germany's been their ally. Maybe that'll be different. I don't know. Yes, I mean possibly. I mean, I mean it is interesting um, because I remember being at uh, Verdun and um, up at uh, Dumont, and I think it's, I think it's very hard really to think of any place actually really in the in World War One that has more significance for France than. Well done. And um, there was a, a a sort of coach party, I think, of uh, probably lycée students or something like that. And I mean, I have to say that the, the 
the behaviour was awful. Um, and, you know, the teachers were doing nothing to to sort of deal with this. But I, 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 I hope that that's not reflective of the way that the young are viewing sort of the history of, of, of their country. And particularly, I think, when you look at something like Verdun and and the place that it holds in in the history of France. I mean, I used to I spend a lot of time working in in uh, Paris, and um, when I used to go back to get the um, the Euro um, Eurostar back from from Gare du Nord, you'd go through Gare Less, and it's still got the signs underneath with Verdun written on them you know and um you know that always struck a chord with me when i went to see it and i always used to wonder what it was like back at that particular time wonder what the uh you know the station must have been like during those uh those war years oh absolutely yeah i think that there's something about trains in the great war actually and, and going to big stations like that you think of the the general mobilization order in france when all those hundreds of thousands of frenchmen were dispatched across different parts rejoin at barracks and all that kind of stuff it must have been quite something. And those names that were there on the railway signboards became the great battles of the First World War. No, uh, well, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, you know, when we used to go from uh, from Norsey, uh, uh, if we ever got the train across to Paris, you went through places like Bar-le-Duc and that sort of thing. And of course, there's just, there's just history everywhere. Yeah, you can't escape it there. And that's the great thing. Now, all these years of tramping around the battlefields, uh, many of us, we you know, you end up writing and, and, and doing something. And I'm pleased that, you know, you, you've taken that path, which a few of us have done now, and you've produced a podcast, a highly successful podcast, Footsteps of the Fallen, where you talk about some of the journeys that you've made and the things that you've done. What really kind of inspired you to, to go down that route with a podcast? Well, I think it's one of those things that um, I've kind of been thinking about doing it for a while, and then it was one of those things that you kind of never get around to it. And I think, like many of us, we found ourselves in lockdown. And um, my um, my dear wife said to me, she said, "Well, you don't talk about anything else, so why don't you record it, and then perhaps somebody other than me will have to listen to it." I think I don't think she said it quite in those terms, but I think <laughs> that was the underlying sort of um, message that was coming across. And um, I sort of, uh, I kind of ummed and awed about it, really. And um, I have to be, I have to be honest. I think one of the things that um, was perhaps most challenging was I decided to release it at a time when some very eminent historians on World War One, yourself, Peter Hart, um, you know, um, Matt McLaughlin, professional military historians, also decided to start producing podcasts and there was a little bit of me it's like well who realistically is going to want to listen to what an amateur's got to say when you have this dearth of of of, of expertise out there um and i actually i remember having a conversation with you and you were like well come on when are you going to when are you going to get this first one released and it was like well i'm going to take the plunge and we'll see how it goes down um and, and actually the first episode i ever released is the still the most popular one of all the ones I've released, closely followed by my interview with you, I hasten to add. So um, um, you've taken uh, taken the second spot, but um, uh, that really was it. I think it's it, it's one of those things that I think podcasting. It if it is something that you are hugely passionate about, and and it's it's something that's such a big part of your life. It's actually it's quite easy to sit and talk about it because it kind of comes, it kind of comes naturally. Um, and I have to say, I mean, I've been, I've been 
absolutely blown away by the response that the podcast has had. I mean, I thought, to be honest, when I started it, I had a few friends on sort of social media who I thought, you know, might be polite and listen to it. And, and then I thought, you know, my mum might tune in and that kind of thing. Um, and I've actually absolutely been blown away by it. And, the, you know, the feedback has been uh, amazing. And I think as long as people keep enjoying what we're producing, then, you know, I, I will keep on producing the, you know, producing podcasts. And uh, I think it's a bit of a golden age really for for military history podcasts i think we're very lucky to be to be proud of that and i think um excuse me to be part of that and i think the um i think the most important thing really is that um it doesn't matter what your background is whether you know you have an academic background or you just have a a real interest in it everybody has something to say and everybody has an opinion on it and i think that's the beauty of podcasts is that um it gives an opportunity for everybody to 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 talk about their favorite subject and if you asked five military historians to talk about you know the fighting at polygon wood for example you're going to get five different podcasts that come out of it and i think that's the beauty of it um and i think the way it's sort of come out and i think the way that it's panned out is that the various podcasts i think they actually complement each other really well because everybody has a different style of presentation and a different style of sort of content and i think what it does is is it sort of puts the various pieces of the puzzle together and, and i think that's the beauty of it um I mean, there are occasions where, you know, I suddenly realise that it's Friday and I haven't actually recorded Sunday's podcast and, and that kind of thing. And you think, oh, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to do? But actually, it's never been a chore. It's, it's always been a pleasure doing it. And, uh, and I hope that continues for a long time. Well, I hope so too. And I mean, I certainly listen every week. It's a, it's a fascinating podcast. And like you say, I think it's a, it's a very democratic medium podcasting because... Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, you've got the ability to put your voice out there. And I think having these different voices is really, really important. And I hope that it feels as done it as if podcasts are here to stay, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I did wonder, to be honest, I did wonder, to be honest, whether when um, sort of lockdown ended or first lockdown ended, whether there was going to sort of like, um, you know, it was going to tail off because people were going back to work and, you know, didn't have the time at home. But actually, I think if anything, it's it's, it's got more popular. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've kind of got to the stage now and I'm, I'm sure with this day, you're the same that. Actually, I don't really look at the downloads very often anymore. But, you know, I think when you first start, you're there every sort of like two hours having a look to see, you know, what's going on. And I think now it's um, it, it's a case of you sort of built an audience. There are people that you know are going to listen to it, so it becomes less important, really. Um, and I think I think what's more important is focusing on producing decent and, and interesting content for people. And um, you know, it's taken some time. It's been over a year that the podcast has been running now, but I think we sort of built up a, a kind of reasonable following to it. And um, you know, people will listen because people want to want to to, to hear what you have to say, and, and say so that that's the beauty of it, definitely. But I think you're right. I think it, I think it has um, it has increased in popularity. I think it is it is here to stay um and long may that continue and i think um you know the more people that produce podcasts on world war one whatever your particular interest in that is then you know everybody has something to add and everything adds value so let, let's have more of them definitely definitely and I, and I think what's interesting is if you look at kind of mainstream media and what is being produced on military history or history generally uh then it's it's often, I would say, not of very high quality. And the kind of depth that people, I think, want from it 
is sadly lacking. Modern television's approach to constructing stories about the Great War are often quite ephemeral, I think, really. Whereas with a podcast and you're in total control of it, you can go down avenues that those kind of programs can't or won't. So, uh, and like, you know, like you say, I think it opens up the potential for, for lots of different voices. I mean, millions of men served in the Great War. They all had different views of it. They came back, some liked it, some loved it, some hated it, uh, some wished they'd never been there, you know, and each one of them saw a battle in a different way. So why shouldn't there be lots of people who, a hundred years later, then talk about those battles in, in different ways and the aspects of the war and the, you know, I, I think as we said when, when we chatted ourselves before, I'd love to see more of the, the next generation of historians that are coming forward now to begin to put their voices into things like this because that's really important. I'm sure it's, it's a developing voice in their case, but I think they've got a lot to say. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, absolutely, I think it's. Um, I think it's absolutely vital. I, I think as well. What for me is always really important is um, if it means that you open up this sort of particular study of history and this particular, um, you know. Um, world-changing event that the Great War was, and it suddenly creates a spark of interest in somebody who maybe hasn't been interested in that before, then that that on its own is the reason to keep podcasting. Even if one person learns something that they didn't know before, then for me, that's the greatest reward I could possibly get from podcasting, um, is just sharing that. And I think it's absolutely important. And I think I think as well, with the particularly with the younger generation, with this kind of electronic sort of generation of 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 youngsters podcasting or listening to podcasts is not seen as uncool because you can do it on your phone and 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 that kind of thing and i think as well if it it encourages particularly as you say that younger generation to generate an interest in history and the great war itself then it's um it's got to be worth doing it no definitely definitely and i mean a big focus of of your podcast uh personal stories uh, about great war things that you've researched that's a big part of what you do, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think for me, it's been something very important since I started doing the podcast is um, I want to tell the personal stories of of the men that were there. Um, and I suppose really the kind of the, the, the genesis of that was um, from sort of listening to various podcasts. I think there are lots of... Um, there are lots of words have been written about the Great War, and goodness me, there's you know, I mean, there's more Great War books out there than than you know you can possibly shake a stick at. Um, if people wish to learn, I don't know about the Battle of the Somme or, or Passchendaele, there are hundreds of books out there that will introduce you to the subject. Um, and for me, I think it was very important to tell the human stories of the in, of individuals within the Great War, um, because ultimately it, it was it was those men that that fought the battle. And I think really this came um, for me very much. I remember having a, a trip over to the the battlefields. I think I'd probably been going there for I don't know maybe twenty years or something like that. So so reasonably long time. And um, you know, what my love is is visiting the cemeteries of world war one it, it always has been and, and i hope it, it always will be and um i remember being um at a, a very small cemetery, uh zouave valley 
um just up from um well sort of around a vimy ridge sort of um yeah, Willow sure, Val, yeah. That's, yeah that sort mm. of way and i was sitting um on the wall around the cemetery eating my lunch and of course i mean i was the only person there as, as it comes as a sort of no great surprise and i had this this extraordinary uh sort of moment came to me i'm not trying to say sort of like a road to damascus experience or something like that but i suddenly realized something that i'd never realized before that this wasn't just a cemetery these weren't just headstones that every single name on there is somebody's grief it's someone's loss that's somebody's son there and every single name every single person is a story to be told and at for me, it completely changed my whole mindset about why it's important for me personally to visit the cemeteries and 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 see the names. It's not just a name. That's that is somebody's sorrow. That's someone's sadness. Somebody loved that man, um, and it's that sort of personal narrative and that personal story was something that i really wanted to bring into the podcast so people can you can go and read a book about the battle of the somme or passiondale or or arras what you perhaps can't do so easily is to tell the personal stories of the men that were involved in it and that was something when i started the podcast was very very important for me to do and it's something that i hope i've managed to sort of continue through the episodes i always try and pick one person um, be that a, a Victoria Cross winner or maybe just someone who discovered some information about from a diary or from a letter or something like that and try and give that person a name. And and as I said, for me, that's something very important in the podcast. Well, I think it's what gives your podcast its depth because, you know, anyone can, can assemble a load of facts about a battle or an engagement or a campaign or whatever and kind of repeat those. But um, when once you start slotting in the stories of those ordinary guys and extraordinary circumstances that's when it becomes more human and and you can relate to it i think and engage with it in a completely different way and understand it through their eyes yes absolutely and um obviously i mean you have to look at the scale of of, of the losses that were involved that there's a million stories out there to be told and you know um you know every uh, everybody that was there did their bit in some small way, shape, or form, and we shouldn't overlook that. Um, and um, as I said, I mean, this this sort of experience that, that I had, it really was, um, it, it just totally changed my perception of it. And I'm really glad that it happened to me in one sense, because I get, I think personally, I get a lot more satisfaction from visiting cemeteries now. And I mean, one of my real loves when whenever I go over to the battlefield, um, yes, cemeteries like um you know Tynecott and Sarah Road number two and Lisenthorpe and absolutely they have a place but for me I like the small cemeteries I like the ones that are off the beaten track I like the ones where you look in the visitors book and there's only been three people have signed it that year or something like that and they're the ones that I want to visit now and and I think probably like like yourself is I've been fortunate enough that I've, I've visited the Western Front so many times that I've kind of I've done Tipval and I've done you know um, uh, Tynecott and, and that sort of thing. Not to say that I'm not going to go back to them at all, but I want to explore other areas. I want to explore areas that are perhaps a little bit more off the beaten track. And this sort of led into really the podcast because one of the things that I wanted to do was focus on perhaps 
areas that don't normally get covered by sort of mainstream history or or, or that sort of thing. Um, and I think really the two of them kind of melded together. It was this telling these personal stories and looking at some of the, you know, the areas that don't normally get covered and, and the podcasts that I've really enjoyed doing were things like on on Trones Wood, on on Bernafay Wood and things like that. That um many visitors the Somme would have driven past it perhaps on way somewhere. But actually there's stories that need to be told about that. Um, and um, you know, the fighting in Artois in 1915 of Nerve Chapelle and 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 Festubert and Aubert's Ridge and things like this. So it's it's really important to um I think move beyond the the kind of the archetypal textbook version of world war one and look at some of these smaller actions look at some of these lesser known places it's like your podcast the other day on on Haley station i mean you know fascinating you know it just will take one cemetery and i really enjoy doing the the cemetery walk episodes mm. we just pick a cemetery and there's so much history there. There's so much to say. And I think the problem really with some of these podcasts, it, it, it's it's actually, what do I take out? Because there's yeah. so much I want to talk about. There's so many stories I want to tell. And, and that's what makes it exciting for me. No, definitely. Uh, and I think it's when you when you start to look at it in the way that we, that we do when we produce a podcast, you realise how rich the Great War is in these stories. And like you say, it's it's not struggling to find things to include it's actually thinking, you know, what, what am I going to have to leave out? Otherwise, I'm going to be talking to these people all day. And I'm sure some would like it, but we've got to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, uh, it, would, it would also take too much editing because one of the things that it also takes me to do is edit all the ums and ers out of um, when I'm... When I'm uh... When I'm doing it, somebody actually said to me uh, that they said, "Oh, I said I was terribly impressed." I said, "Like you've gone through the whole thing, and I didn't hear a single armoner." And it's like, "Well, it's because I spent four hours editing them out, basically." So that's that, that's why you didn't hear anything in there. Yeah, and and I think also with the the personal stories, you know, um, and going off the beaten track, as you say. I mean, one of your episodes I particularly liked was the Gardeners of Salonica, um, mm. looking at that, you know, that Macedonia and. And that that front that very few people even realise existed, let alone that British soldiers and, and men from many nations were there. So um, I think, you know, that is I mean, you'd never get a documentary commissioned on that, not for mainstream television. But uh, yeah, I put a podcast out about that is I think is a great thing. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things that, um, you know, we there is a definite tendency, I think, amongst Great War sort of historians and, and podcasters and researchers and that sort of thing, that, that, that we do get fixated with the Western Front. Um, and it was called the World War for a reason, because it was a global conflict. And yes, you have Salonika, there's Mesopotamia, there's East Africa, there's Gallipoli. Um, there's this whole world of conflict out there. And um you know, I think that's what makes it so exciting. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed the one about Salonika. It's it's one of those places that um, I, I think, as you say, it's it's largely unheard of. And um, I think as well, people forget very much about the, you know, the fighting that took place in Mesopotamia, you know, modern day Iraq. And um, of course, I mean, that's particularly uh, prescient now when you look at what's happened over the last sort of 20 years, wow. that we're back there again under completely, you know, completely different circumstances. And uh, wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I've got something planned that I'm going to do in the near future about um, the African campaign in, uh, you know, in East Africa, because I mean, that was remarkable when you look wow. at what happened there. Um, 
so yeah, I think it's I think it's good to sort of pick these things and um I say if it helps sort of maybe introduce somebody to something that they weren't aware of before, then that's a very good reason to keep talking about these lesser known places. Definitely, definitely. Now you're in the preparation of uh, working on a couple of books. I think your first one's coming out uh, next year. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So, so this has been a bit of a sort of 20 year labor of love, really. Um, it, it, it sort of came about really, it, the, the, the interest started back in uh, 2001. Um, I was uh, off work, I'd actually fallen down a flight of stairs, and I had broken a leg. And um, I, I was at home. And once the novelty of going to the pub every day had worn off, which didn't take very long, to be honest. Um, one of the things that I decided to do was to um, teach myself how to use this newfangled invention called the internet, um, you know, which was this, this, this amazing thing. And of course, one of the first things that I started doing was uh, looking at things to do with World War One and, um, and that sort of thing. And um, I came across various websites from um, various schools around the country who produced websites about their war dead and those that had died in in World War One, and I, it made me start thinking. I wonder if anybody has done this for my old school or not. So I went to a school called uh, Bloxham, which was up in uh, Oxfordshire, so near uh, Banbury. It was um, it was instead is a, a, a small public school, and um, it was it was in, in existence at the time of uh, the First World War. And, I, and I'm very ashamed to admit, actually, when I look at this now, that um, I spent six years at the school, and I probably couldn't have told you that there was actually a war memorial in the chapel. Um, I, you know, I used to go to to chapel there three times a week. Um, but I guess when you're of that age, you're a teenager, you perhaps have other interests and and that sort of thing. But um, I got in contact with the school and asked them whether there were, they had any um, sort of biographical information. And the um, uh, the chap who was the archivist there, a fantastic man by the name of uh, Shaw McClory, Ma- Major Shaw McClory, Major Mac, as he was known, he was the archivist. He was um, he was a, a, an absolutely eccentric character, uh, Major Mac, and he had a, um, a sort of a nominal list of names, and it contained some very very basic kind of biographical information um, uh, about the men. But it, what became very obvious was that there was no one had ever done a, a really, really in-depth study of them about what happened to them, who were they, where did they come from? And it really came from there. And um, it's um, so I got all the names and I plotted them onto a, an Excel spreadsheet and I went onto the Commonwealth War Graves and I found where they were commemorated. And I was incredibly lucky, actually, that the vast majority of them had headstones instead of being uh, names on memorials, which is, um, you know, when you when you look at this sort of like some of the research projects I've done later on, it's incredibly fortunate as to how many of them um, had headstones. And um, having sort of plotted this out, I uh, set off to Belgium, and um, I arrived in Ypres on the wettest day I've ever seen on the Ypres sailing. It was biblical rain. Rain in Flanders, um, can't believe it. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, it was sort of, it was kind of the rain where you stop and take a photograph and your wellies are filling up oh, with um, with it. And you're kind of, um, you're walking across the cemeteries and there's water squelching out from underneath your boots. Um, oh. And I went to Menin Road South and uh, found the grave of a man called um, Lieutenant Archibald Horner 
who served in uh, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. And his was the first grave that I visited of, of the men from my old school. And this kind of went on really for really the next kind of uh, 15, 15 or so years. And um, I became very, very good friends with uh, a chap called Simon Batten, who is a history teacher at school and is now the school archivist, who is incredibly passionate about World War One, And... Um, he was particularly helpful with it. And I produced a website. And uh, I think the first website I produced, if it was a school report, would probably have said could do better. Um, so that was up and running for a couple of years. And then I produced a new one, which I, I think was 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 a vast improvement on um, this. And um, Simon actually wrote a, uh, a an award-winning book on World War One himself, that was published by um, by the publishers, and in when we were having a conversation with the publishers, we were telling them about the website, and they suggested, "Well, why don't you make this into a book? I think it's really, really interesting." So we took the biographies of the of the men when we started the project. There were seventy six names on the school war memorial. There's now eighty. Um, so we found uh, we found four. Simon found three of them. I, I, I came across one of them, and. Um, we uh, were very fortunate in one sense that the school actually had portrait photographs of nearly all of them. Wow. Um, sadly, there was a fire at the school, I think in the 1980s, and, and one of the photo frames was destroyed in the fire. Um, but we have now managed to recollect um, photographs of all of them. So um, all, all 80, we we have pictures of them and they now hang in the school where they where they used to and um and it's really come from there so obviously we i was very fortunate that um simon as a, as a sort of published historian he um brought his kind of author's eye to it and um we you know with his knowledge of the school and that sort of thing so really what we've done is written the biographies of the men but then also looked at the way schools and particularly small public schools commemorated the war dead in in uh, not only at the time of the war but in the immediate aftermath and how remembrance has changed for schools since the end of the first world war so um that's due uh, i believe to be published hopefully early next year so it's sort of like the end of an odyssey really and um i am um, i'm sure you must have felt this with some of your projects that when you finally put that last full stop on something that you've been so involved in for so long there's almost like this kind of tinge of sadness that you don't want it to stop because it's like it's almost like well what on earth am i going to do now yeah it didn't take long to find something else but that um and that's really where it came from yeah and i think you're right i think the whole memorialization the history of memorialization is a fascinating subject in, in its own right and it's 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 interesting how many uh cases i hear of like the one you've just described where once you begin to look at it now from the kind of research that we can do these days how many names were were omitted from war memorials, and you know, and why was that? I think a lot of the ones that that that, that we found were um, that parents simply didn't tell the school that that, that they'd received news of the death. Now, um, one can only imagine in in certain circumstances the grief was such. Actually, you know, it was just the last thing on my mind was to be writing to the school to tell them that um, you know um, that, that 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 my son has died. Um, and there was one of the um, one of the the men actually was discovered through a, a really a chance discovery whilst looking through the Australian National Archives, and it came up with a reference to um, Bloxham College 
um, and the man's attestation papers had been incorrectly filled in. Of course, it should have said Bloxham School on it. And, um, you know, so that was really, uh, I'd say, very much a, a chance discovery that we came with that. But I think really the other ones, really just the parents didn't actually let the school know and nobody at the time thought to to check up or maybe that you know there wasn't the means to check up as to what had what had happened uh to to these boys but i'm very i'm very proud and i'm very glad that these names have been added onto the war memorial now and and, and rightly they should i just um i just hope once the book's gone to the publishers we don't discover anybody else well you, you never know i mean I, I i found myself that once you start putting this stuff out there people step forward and they come up with you know new photographs new information and and, and that's all part, you know, going back to the podcast, that's all part of the kind of evolving nature of this is that there isn't a last word on, on any of it. You know, there's, there's new information all the time. Well, I've been through the uh, 1911 census for the school and I've cross-referenced every single name on there with the Commonwealth War Graves and with soldiers that died on the Great War. And, and I cannot find anybody that we aren't already aware of that, that lost it. So I'm kind of hoping in one sense that that, 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 that is it. Um, but then of course, there'd always be that little like free song of excitement when you find a name that you haven't heard before, or you find a reference to the school and you think, Oh, just, I wonder, just wonder, is that another one? Um, and it's been really interesting as well. I mean, it took me through, um, you know, down some really sort of interesting research, um, sort of opportunities. One of the things that I was trying to do for many, many years was I was trying to find a, uh, a photograph of a particular officer. Um, and unfortunately, his surname was Smith and he was in the Royal Fusiliers, oh, which was you know, n- not a great starting point given how many battalions there were in such a common name. Um, and um, after about, ooh, I don't know, 12 years of searching whilst, um, and this was before everything was digitised. I was at the um, newspaper archives in Collindale mm. up in uh, Northwest London. Mm. And I came across a supplement to one of the London newspapers that they used to um, publish. And they, they produced this supplement called in, in, in the name of the fallen. And they would have the sort of, you know, the pen portraits of, of officers who predominantly officers who'd been killed in in combat. And I am um, using that. I worked out that there was normally about a six to seven week gap between an officer dying and, and him appearing. And um, Julie went through it. And sure enough, I managed to find a photograph of, uh, of Second Lieutenant James Clement Smith of the Royal Fusiliers. And, and for me, when you've been doing something for 12 years or something like that, you've been trying to find the photograph. It's just, it's so exciting. And, and it just, it, it's wonderful. And I think that's, that's the beauty of history. You, you get these, these subjects, and you get so involved in them. And when you finally find that missing piece of the jigsaw, the, the, the buzz you get from it, unless you do that yourself, it's impossible to understand why you'd get so excited about a small photograph in a newspaper. Well, that's it. And I, and I think that, you know, the passion that you have for this subject and the way you describe it, both in your podcast and, and talking about your book now, that is something that comes across strongly so that that's your first book you're going to move on to another subject after that yes so um i am currently uh working on the first uh section of a book on the fighting at festubert in uh 1915 it's been uh 
well, anyone who listens to the podcast will know I, I have a particular affinity to, to the battlefields of Artois and, and the fighting in 1915. But Festubert has always been something that I've been really, really interested in. And I, and I think what I feel very much about it is it's rather been unfairly lumped in as, as a sort of continuation of the fighting at, at Aubert's, you know, from, from the 9th of May. And... Um, I always felt this was rather unfair because actually it represented, I think, a, a very significant change in in British tactics in the way that they went about battle. It was the first night attack of the First World War. It was the first time the Canadians were fighting um, alongside the British in in, in an action, and um, it's so it's been really really interested me for for many many years. And um, I thought, well. I mean, it only gets almost like a cursory mention, even in the official history. I think there's only about 17 pages or something like that in the whole of the official history. And um, I just thought, actually, you know what? It's something that fascinates me. I'm really interested in it. Let's um, let's write a book about it. Um, so that's where I am at the moment. It's at very early stages uh, at the moment, but um, I find myself disappearing down various wormholes in in the research and and that sort of thing, and um, hopefully I can do those men justice. And and first of all, like you say, it's going to mark that um, that move uh, in 1915 from kind of stumbling around, isn't it? Really into the new world of warfare on the Western Front. Yeah, very much so. And I, and I think one of the criticisms, obviously, that gets sort of um, sometimes rather unfairly pointed towards First World War generals is that they were devoid of ideas. There was no new sort of thinking about how we should do things. But actually, when you look at what happened at Obels and then you look at what happened at Festubert, they recognised the errors and they recognised the, the shortcomings of, of the battle plan. And it really was a case of, OK, well, what are we going to do differently? How are we going to think about this differently? So instead of this lightning quick bombardment of artillery that you had um, with Obers, this was this slow deliberate bombardment with heavy howitzers and we're going to focus specifically on strong points in the German line and we're going to have forward observation officers that are going to feed back and tell us I mean as it happened it was a disaster but it does demonstrate that there wasn't this this kind of like stone age mindset that we'll just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and I think Festubert really as I say was as you say I think it was the turning point in sort of British military strategy and British military thinking and it, and it did demonstrate that yes we, we are prepared to try new things to see you know if uh, if it will work as it happened of course as we know it didn't um, but um, I think, as I say, to sort of level this this criticism of this, there there was no change. It was just this this you know sending infantry against machine guns. That is, um, I think, it's a slightly myopic view of, of of what actually happened. Yeah, definitely, and I, and I think that that part of the battlefields as well is is so greatly unchanged that when you go there, having done research in war diaries and official history and things, you know, you you can really kind of piece it together. Yes, ab yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was um, I, I was over there probably about about a month ago now, I think, and and we um, um, spent an afternoon. We um, walked up the Cinder Track, 
um, and um, across in front of um, what we you know the the Ferme Cœur du Ave and across the dike that was there. And you're touching history, as you say. I mean, you, I, I always think that if you were to bring some of the some of the chaps back, they'd probably recognise some of this. And 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 for being there in the in, in the, the the modern world, that's really exciting. I think it's changed so little. As you say, the, the, particularly Artois, I think that that is that is particularly so. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's tangible and it's touchable. And I think the thing I particularly like about the battlefields in Artois is it's so compact. So you can walk an entire battlefield in an afternoon, or something like that. And um, and so if you've done a little bit of research beforehand and and you understand, you know what's going on. I, mean, I think I said to you that that as just at the um, as you come back up the the Rue du Bois, there's the, the playing fields, and they've got the um, the signs about Lauvers lambs and um, the Boar's Head fighting in 1916. And I'd listened to your podcast on that sort of the weekend before that I went there, and it was like that for me. It brings it all to life because you're there and you're 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 touching history. Um, but as I said, I think really 1915, with with the exception of of perhaps lose and, and Gallipoli, the Western Front gets overlooked. And I think that's so sad because there was so much happened. There was so much happened and there were so many lessons that were learned. Um, it's very sad that we don't look at battles like Neuve-Chapelle and Aubert's and Festubert um, uh, and that sort of thing in the same way that we do with some of the sort of, you know, the, the offensives or actions that took place later in the war. No, definitely. And I, I think as well, it, it, aside from the tactical side of it, it, it was a change in the British Army from this pre-war volunteer regular army, then the arrival of the Territorials. And by the time you get to lose the first arrival of men from, from the new army, from in many cases from that very first 100,000. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, and obviously, what we you know, what a contribution those men made, and um, you know, I mean, losing itself. I mean, that's that's a whole that's a whole other story about you know what went wrong there. And but I, I think for me, one of the things that I, I always find particularly important about the the fighting in in 1915 is that um, yes, whilst casualties were were horrendous, and actually, in um, in real terms. There was very little ground was actually gained at all whatsoever. But what was gained was an enormous amount of knowledge about how to fight a battle in these circumstances. And I think you really have to look at things like, um, you know, the fighting at Nerve Chapelle, that it's taking the German front lines actually quite easy. Holding on to it, that's a completely different matter. Um, and there's no doubt, I think, to, to my mind, that when you look at the fighting in 1915, it was the lessons that were learned in 1915 that changed the direction of the, you know, the, the way the conflict went from the British point of view. Of course, it's terribly sad and terribly poignant when you think that the price of those lessons were, were the thousands of men who lost their lives. But ultimately, I think if you hadn't had those actions in 1915, the, the overall course of the war and the way that the war panned out, I think, would have taken a very different route. No, I think you're absolutely right. So I very much look forward to that book on Festival. I think it's uh, you know books on some of those forgotten battles of the Great War are long, long overdue. Now, you were out on the battlefields quite recently, and I've been out there as well myself. Um, you know, as we <laughs> head back towards a, a period of probably difficulty in, in traveling over there 
as we look to next year, you know, how, how do you feel about the future of battlefield visiting and, and the battlefields themselves? Well, I mean, I, I, I certainly hope for, you know, all my friends over in France and Belgium that rely on, you know, people who go over to, to visit the battlefields that these restrictions, um, whilst absolutely necessary, and I understand why they're in place, I, I hope that they are or certainly relax or, or, or reduce to an extent that people can get back to the battlefield and start visiting it. Um, I, I have friends out in Belgium who I know of, you know, that the have suffered terribly through the lack of people going out there. And, um, you know, I think, I think I went actually the longest that I've been without ever visiting the Western front. I went all two years um, without getting over there. And, and in real terms, when you think about it, actually, in the greater scale, when you, when you look at the reasons behind it, the circumstances, well, okay, fine. It's, it's you know, it's, uh, yes, I'd quite like to visit it, but I kind of understand why I why I can't. But, um, I mean, I'm hoping very much that, um, you know, once we've ridden out this this current sort of peak that we're in at the moment, these current problems that we're in, that that the opportunities for visiting the battlefields will, will re- present themselves again. Um, I mean, I, I miss Ypres terribly i really do um and and i think one of the things actually that i I found i was very surprised about during lockdown was i didn't realize how much i was going to miss visiting the battlefields and how much i was going to miss visiting the cemeteries of world war one and um you know it it really surprised me actually it was almost like i felt kind of like a sort of right arm had gone sort of thing there was like a little bit of me was was missing um i mean i think we all had this kind of thought didn't we when there was the centenary you know of of the great war and of course there was this this um surfeit of programs and and um interest quite rightly about what happened i think um there was a maybe a, a thought perhaps is is interest going to tail off now that we've gone past the hundredth anniversary and I think I'm really pleased to see actually that no it, it, if anything I think it's stronger than than, than ever before and I'm certain that um, things like podcasts are, are, are contributing towards that but um, I I depending on um, depending on how nicely I talk to my wife, hopefully I will get back over to the battlefields um, next year. I've certainly got some plans to um, to to make some trips over there. I just haven't mentioned that I'd like to go to Gallipoli for a week, but um, um, we'll see whether we'll see whether I can get that one past her or not. Well, I hope so. I hope so. And do you think you know the kind of production of the sort of podcast that we've been doing and and others as well? Do you think that might have kind of changed the way people see battlefields as well? Well, I, I think I think it probably has. I mean, I think one of the things that that, um, that podcast does, and, and I think you touched on this earlier, is is it it brings cemeteries to life. Um, which is kind of a strange thing to say, actually, when you think about it, because it's, it's, sort of it's a bit of an anathema when you say that, but. Um, Yes, I, I think it probably has. And what it's, um, I think when you tell the stories of the human side, like you do with yours and, and, and I do with mine, I hopefully that encourages people to go, well, actually, you know, whilst, um, you know, cemeteries are obviously the resting place of the dead, we need to remember that kind of ethos of the Commonwealth war graves that they shouldn't be places of sorrow, they should be places of memory and places to remember and places to reflect and they are they are incredibly beautiful 
war cemeteries. And that's a really strange thing to say. And I know that, you know, um, if you said that to someone who perhaps um, is not a World War I fanatic or a history fanatic, they go, what on earth are you talking about? It's a cemetery, you know. But actually, when you go there and you look at the care that they're looked after with and, and the horticulture and the flowers, I mean, there is nothing better is there when you go to a war cemetery in late summer and the flowers are in full bloom they are beautiful i mean there's, there's no other way to describe it. they they are absolutely beautiful um and um yeah so i think if we can kind of bring that across to people and and you can bring across that actually this isn't this isn't all about morbidity and it's not all about you know the the thousands of people that died this is this is human history this is human stories that need to be told and i think if people can get that feeling through podcasts um and it encourages somebody that actually the next time i'm driving through france and i see a war somebody i might just pull the car over and just go and have a look because you know we've heard about the way the headstones are designed and we've heard about you know that there's no difference between whether it's a brigadier general or a private um maybe it would be quite interesting maybe i'll have a look maybe i'll stop and i think if that happens once again that's a real reason why we should carry on podcasting because it opens it up and, and it makes it more accessible to people definitely i, I had a, a truck driver on twitter say to me that he regularly drives down the a1 towards paris or perhaps back again and passes some of the cemeteries of the great war on that route and has often wondered about them could i do some podcasts on them so yeah, i think it you know it, it, it shows what the kind of power of those podcasts could be to to help inform people and like you say make them stop because you know, I feel that aside from all the history side of it, there are there are lessons to be drawn by going to these places because they are gardens of remembrance, as you say, and places to reflect and reflect not just on the past, but the present and maybe even the future and, and you know, how we live our own lives and what we draw from the lessons of these men, you know, men who often didn't get a chance to really live a proper life and it puts an onus on us to do uh, to do that ourselves, maybe. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that kind of sort of touches on the reason why we study history. And um, I, I remember having this conversation with um, Simon Batten, who I was talking about earlier on uh, one of our trips to the battlefield. And, and I remember asking him the question, saying, well, you're a history teacher. Why does history matter? And it's because it teaches us to learn from the mistakes of the past, and that's why it's important that we that, that we study it, because, you know, we only have to look back through history. There are two things that have caused more problems in history than anything else. One is religion and the other is war. Um, and, 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 and warfare has shaped the way our world is today. And I think it's vitally important yeah, that we don't forget that. And we do continue that study and we do continue looking at it. And as you said, if we can if we can help a new generation of young historians come in and, and and embrace this subject then hopefully hopefully just finally that idea that we're going to learn from the lessons of the past might actually come to fruition well let's hope so let's hope so and in, in terms of podcasts i mean you know how do you you know we've, we've i think we've accepted that they're here to stay and, and how do you see them kind of going forward what do you think the future of the sort of podcasts we produce I, I i think i think it's gonna i think it's gonna carry on growing in in uh in popularity um i mean 
it's i think the advantage of podcasts is they are so accessible um you don't need any special equipment to to listen to them it doesn't cost you anything to listen to them um and and i think when sort of you know people have gone back to normal and they've gone back to work you can still listen on the train to a podcast or you can still listen in the car to it and i i think i think to be honest what has been really advantageous for you know, ourselves who produce podcasts is people have had the opportunity during lockdown to indulge in this. People have had the opportunity, whereas they might not otherwise have done, to sort of discover how good podcasts can be and and how informative they can be and how entertaining they can be. And I think really what's happened is that people have realised that it, 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 it is a short burst of accessible history. You know, it's what, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, something like that. My commute when I used to work into London was 25 minutes each way. I could listen to a podcast every day to and from work. And I think that's the advantage of it. And I think that's why it makes it so accessible to people. And that's why I always try and keep podcasts around about sort of 50, 55 minutes, something like that, because it's the average length of a commute for people. Um, and I think really, I think it will carry on. I think the the lockdown was obviously very difficult for everybody in many, many, many circumstances. But for podcasters, I think the lockdown was uh, was was um, you know an amazing opportunity to get people listening to podcasts, and it does become addictive listening to podcasts. There's there's no doubt whatsoever. I mean, I I have a, a collection of podcasts that I now listen to religiously, whereas before um, I would occasionally have a listen to something, but I wasn't. A, I wouldn't describe myself as a podcast listener. Now there are some things that I can't wait till my phone beeps with the notification to say that there's a new episode coming, and I get back into it. And I hope that that continues, and I, and I think it will, because I think the podcast listeners are now have available to them such a wide library of, of opinion and thought and um, and uh, narrative and that sort of thing. It's, it's just a fantastic time to be a podcast listener, and, um, and along may that continue. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Um, if you don't follow Matt on Twitter... That's something you need to address, and we'll put links onto the podcast website. And do make sure that you follow his podcast and listen to it on a regular basis. It's available on all the usual platforms, and again, we'll put some links up there. And Matt, thank you once more for joining us. Paul, thank you very much, Steve. Been an absolute pleasure. And I'm so glad to our friend on Twitter who suggested this. So it's been brilliant. Absolutely, yeah. Chapeau. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Cheers. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reid. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>